Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, this is Owen Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Is Joe Biden Roosevelt? Hmm. Already, I think, quite a lot of consternation caused just by even saying these things. Here's a good jumping off point for discussion about Joe Biden's administration uh, he's not someone from a progressive background, but have the US left, he's become a power, managed to extract concessions from him? What should the relationship be to Joe Biden's administration? Uh, is it something which actually is just a, you know, a, a unprogressive administration that has been forced to take drastic measures, uh, but actually will not leave a transformative imprint in the United States. And that's without even talking about foreign policy, because those bombs have already been dropped under Biden's administration. To talk about this and the nuances, I am joined by the brilliant author, writer, Kate Aronoff, and also uh, Walid Shahid from the Justice Democrats, who's helped organise to get progressive uh, politicians uh, elected, including, of course, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, now, to support the channel, please support us on Patreon. That'll help decide who we speak to and the topics we talk about, uh, including documentaries like the one we've got coming up about Hartlepool. Um, all you can use the support function in the description. Do subscribe. Give us five stars. If you want to be even more generous, leave a review. With that said, please enjoy. Today... Is Joe Biden the new Roosevelt? Hmm. Already quite a few arched eyebrows, probably quite a lot of angry people. My cat, as you can see, is deeply perturbed by the question and has already stolen the show. Can you not? So <laughs> Joe Biden has recently, Joe Biden has uh, not been praised by AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but she said that he's exceeded expectations. That's caused quite a lot of fury and anger amongst a lot of certainly the online US left, um, but equally outraged from Republicans who think that therefore confirms their worst fear. So is Joe Biden, is he exceeding progressives' expectations? And I suppose looking back, Roosevelt, not not a, not a president actually from a progressive background, uh, but in office uh, because partly of the struggles of the US left was forced into more progressive positions, though his presidency was more flawed than often uh, history sugarcoats. Likewise, LBJ, huge caveats there. He carpet-bombed Southeast Asia and did many reactionary things, but did some progressive things, even though he was a conservative Texan Democrat. So what I'm, what we're doing today is we are joined by two fantastic guests, uh, Walid uh, Shahid, who is from many things, including the Justice Democrats, who organised to get progressive Democrats elected. Uh, he's been involved in so many campaigns to get progressive Democrats uh, elected, uh, such as Jamal Bowman, Corey Bush, 
uh, involved with all sorts of campaigns, AOC, Bernie Sanders, you name it. And we're also joined by the fantastic Kate Aronoff, who is the author of, and you must uh, get uh, this book out now, Overheated, How Capitalism Broke the Planet and How We Fight Back. And they have also both written chapters for another book called Winning the Green New Deal, Why We Must, How We Can. So just, just buy all those books. Hello to both of you. Hello. Hello. Right, let's just kick off. I'll just throw it at you. Is Joe Biden the new Roosevelt? Let's have a little precede answer. Who wants that? Who wants to start the little summary? Kate, it's you. You wrote the book. Well, I wrote a book. I didn't write the book. Um, there are New Deal historians who could who could say more. Uh, no, he is not the new Roosevelt. In part, because I think you know sometimes historical analogies can can encourage sort of lazy thinking. Um, but what is true is that Joe Biden has exceeded just about everyone's expectations for what he would do on many, many fronts, uh, including including myself. I finished the book behind me that way uh, in uh, the summer. Most of the writing I finished my final, final uh, edits on January 6th when uh, white supremacists stormed the U.S. Capitol. And at that point, you know, I would not have expected that Joe Biden would get through a $1.9 trillion stimulus that included important expansions of the safety net, albeit temporary, uh, and, you know, would, would be talking a much bigger game on climate, you know, would not have predicted that he would uh, want to reduce U.S. emissions 50% below 2005 levels by 2030, which he announced last week. So all of this is, is much, much more than anyone expected from Joe Biden in the Democratic primary, certainly, even in the general election. He, in the primary, was the most uh, conservative candidate on climate. But, you know, maybe you can debate whether that was Amy Klobuchar or uh, Joe Biden, but, you know, was was a very sort of centrist-leaning leaning candidate on, on climate in the primary um, and has exceeded just about every expectation for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, I think the ways in which he's not like Roosevelt, I'll say briefly, are that, um, you know, within uh, within a month of taking office, Roosevelt had gotten a civilian uh, conservation court through, had, had you know, implemented a, a, a bank holiday, had done sort of big things that, you know, at the time were totally unprecedented, had gotten them through, um, albeit with much bigger majorities, of course, than, than Joe Biden enjoys right now. Um, but it just done a lot of stuff. Uh, and Joe Biden passed a very big stimulus package, right? Bigger than anyone would have expected. Um, that stimulus is not permanent. Checks are not going to keep going out. Unemployment insurance will not be permanently expanded. Child tax credit will not be permanently expanded. Um, and we haven't seen any climate policy yet, which is the area where I, I tend to focus on. And there have been uh, fairly underwhelming, actually, proposals as part of his infrastructure plan uh, for climate. And they haven't passed yet. And we don't know if they will. Right. We don't know if they'll survive reconciliation. Uh, so, you know, I don't think I don't think Joe Biden is Roosevelt. What I do hope and I'll end on this maybe is that the election coming up in 2022 that Democrats need to win in order to, you know, undertake this decade of decarbonization that we desperately, desperately need, um, that, you know, that election will not look like the 2010 election. Uh, the last time we had a Democratic administration, which saw huge blowout losses uh, for, uh, the, for the Democrats, losing their, their majority in the House. Um, and that, you know, is why we 
haven't gotten a conversation about climate change uh, in the in the last decade. So I hope, you know, as as skeptical and sort of curmudgeonly as I am about the Biden administration, that enough people will see sort of good things happening in their lives to uh, allow Democrats to keep the House in 2022 uh, and and sustain majorities. And you know, I that seems up for debate to me right now. Um, and that's, you know, Joe Biden has not built a new New Deal coalition in the way that, uh, that Roosevelt did and was able to sustain the sorts of transformative changes to the U.S. that, that he, he brought up, his administration brought about under massive pressure from social movements. Well, lead Roosevelt, Biden. Um, no, I don't think uh, Joe Biden is the new Roosevelt, but I think that FDR becomes a you know, symbol or marker of a way of easily talking about summarizing that Biden is rejecting in significant ways the old Democratic Party consensus that uh, was prevailing from the Reagan era onward from 1980s onwards. And so um, he, he has not fully stepped into, you know, what one might call a realigning presidency or becoming a realigner himself in the way that FDR was or Reagan was or Margaret Thatcher in the UK. Um, but he is rejecting the a lot of the deficit hawk. Um, you know, we have to keep government small. Uh, government programs uh, are not the way to go to serve um, underprivileged, low-income communities which was his ideology for his whole Senate career. And so I think a lot of what progressives are reacting to is that during the presidential primary um, in 2020, so much of the progressive talking points about Joe Biden was look at his record. He voted for the Iraq war. He voted to cut welfare. He voted for NAFTA. Um, he was a champion of uh, the credit card industry. And so when someone like AOC says that he exceeds expectations, I think the context of her remarks are that, well, compared to his whole career as a politician in the Senate, he is actually rejecting the very politics that he himself comes from. And that is significant. But no, I wouldn't say he's like fully stepped into um, the FDR Reagan role because that would require um, a much more full-throated embrace of a progressive populist message. And Biden does not really alienate that many of the most powerful actors in American society yet. Um, you know, if you think about the conservative revolution in the United States, um, where it goes from someone like Barry Goldwater to Richard Nixon to uh, Ronald Reagan, you might compare Joe Biden in that long trend of realignment to someone more like Richard Nixon in terms of ideologically not being fully in either camp yet. Um, and someone like uh, Ronald Reagan on the Democratic progressive left side has not yet to emerge on the national level, um, you know, has not won a national election yet. Um, but, you know, Joe Biden, his whole career has represented the median consensus point of Democratic elected officials in Washington. And I think he's representing that consensus point of Democratic elected officials in Washington today. And as more Justice Democrats, Democratic Socialists, progressives continue to win seats in Congress, that median consensus point will continue to shift over time. But right now, um, you know, the number of seats that uh, Justice Democrats or progressives, you know, strong progressives, probably somewhere between 10 to 30 seats on any given day um, out of a 435 person body. It's um, it's it's not large enough to command that sort of presence yet. But um, I think it is 
uh, it is significant all the ways that Kate is saying that he is rejecting the politics of yesterday um, and transitioning to a new form of politics. FDR created Social Security, LBJ created Medicare and Medicaid, huge government programs that people still believe are popular today. For Joe Biden to reach that level of even FDR and LBJ, he would have to create something on that magnitude, which he has not yet done. The child tax credit is probably the closest thing to it, um, which would cut child poverty, you know, estimates say from anywhere between a third to a to half. Um, but it's not a permanent program yet. Uh, and he has not indicated that he intends to make it a permanent program. So jury is still out on on the question. But um, I do think he's a transitional figure in a lot of ways. So in terms of we'll start with, I guess, some more positives on the balance sheet, not specific to Biden per se. I mean, we're going to talk about a lot of the negatives and what comes next. In that, I think some of the reaction I thought to AOC's comments, which I thought were heavily caveated because it was relative what she said. It was given what we know about Joe Biden, we would have expected a more conservative administration, but actually it's been more progressive given what we know, is what she was saying. But I thought what I found frustrating, I, I know a lot of it's just online stuff, and but nonetheless, it was it was revealing. And, and I suppose this is what I'm interested in, what you both think about this, which is... How There's only mobile... online space, Owen, in the pandemic. Okay. There's no other space. No <laughs> meat space, no meat space in COVID. I, I don't know exactly. That's the thing, actually, because that is the only place that any discussions is happening. So perhaps Public square. That is the public square, of course. You're right. Um, is that... Uh, to say what I'm interested in is how much has the US left gained? How, how many concessions have been gained which would not have happened were it not for the organizing of the US left. And what I find frustrating, I think, about the response is it's saying that don't bother organizing, don't bother mobilizing, because there's been all these mobilizations now for years. The US left has become a permanent and a big political force, and it has achieved absolutely zero. So why bother? I suppose that's what I thought was frustrating. So what what have the US left, do you think, specifically gained from this administration which would not have happened were it not for their efforts. I mean, I think it's it's hard to sort of sum all that up, right? Because since the last uh, Democratic president was elected in 2000, since Obama's election in 2008, there's just been so much uh, movement from below that's really changed the whole conversation in ways that I think are are tough to like assign to any any one demand, right? So 2011, the emergence of Occupy Wall Street, 2013, 14, the movement for Black Lives really um, comes into its own. We see uh, protests against the, the Keystone XL pipeline, the Dakota Access pipeline. We just see a sort of drumbeat over the last decade, really, of social movements really changing the conversation a whole host of, of things. And so that is reflected in in the Biden administration, I think in some pretty concrete ways, right? The fact that Larry Summers and Timothy Geithner were not on the short list for the administration and are not, in fact, in the administration or really um, shaping the conversation of economic policy in the way that they had total sort of domination over in the response to the Great Recession is really meaningful, right? There are a sort of new generation of wonks who have come up and are now in places like the Council of Economic Advisors and the in the administration who are, uh, are have a, a very different understanding for what the consensus is, and that has been shaped 
for the last decade by social movements, right? That has been, you know, a, a real fight to get things like economic inequality and racial justice put at the center of, of the of the policy agenda and get austerity in the ways that Willie was talking about really pushed off of the out of the debate. Um, not that it's gone. I don't think we're done with austerity or neoliberalism, certainly, but I think it's it's a very different conversation now than has happened. And so those things are all really, really meaningful. We would not get something like the child tax credit 10 years ago. We would not get $1.9 trillion of spending 10 years ago. We would not get, you know, a, generously speaking, a trillion dollars of, of pledged investment for, uh, for, for clean energy and for, you know, toward, toward the climate crisis, as small as that is compared to the scale of the problem, which we know needs, you know, a $10 trillion investment uh, over, over the next decade, not $1 trillion over eight years, uh, which is, which is what's, what's, the, what's being proposed now is the sort of high watermark from the administration, which is, again, just egregiously low, um, given the scale of the climate crisis. But the thing that I struggle with a bit is that the conversation has changed a lot. There's a lot better signals, even personnel in the administration is, is really, you know, much more progressive than, than a decade ago. Those are all, you know, real achievements. I mean, the thing that I struggle with is that we haven't seen that much policy pass, right? I mean, we've seen attempts to sort of roll back the Trump administration. We've seen, obviously, again, the stimulus, I'll just keep, <laughs> keep bringing that up. It is a huge achievement. Um, but on climate policy, right, we haven't, we haven't actually seen anything pass. And we haven't seen, you know, what is it that the administration is really willing to fight for. Um, and that, you know, remains to be seen, but we're 100 days in, uh, almost on, on Thursday, uh, that, you know, we're speaking on Tuesday, will be the 100 day mark for Biden. And by this point in the Obama administration, we had gotten $90 billion worth of spending for clean energy, you know, and then we don't have anything like that right now. We could get much more, but the fact is we haven't yet. And I, I do think that there is this sort of strange thing happening where people who have been sort of outside of, of the of, of, of the halls of power for a very long time through the Trump administration, certainly, but even who were, you know, pretty young under under Barack Obama's administration are having conversations with the White House and, you know, doing the thing that I think is pretty common in sort of social democratic uh, administrations and in different parts of the world in Europe, for instance, whereas there's, you know, an audience being had with progressives from the White House, right, from people like Ron Klain, the chief of staff. Um, but that, I think, can sometimes get confused for power. Um, and for, you know, a, a real tangible change in policy, which we haven't seen it translate to yet. So I think the two things can be true at once, right? That the, the, the Biden administration is absolutely exceeding every expectation and has, you know, is reflective of a, a much broader shift in um, what kind of constitutes economic common sense. It's come from below, but, you know, we still haven't won a tremendous amount yet, especially on climate. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. 
With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, Eid, I mean, you've spent years uh, dedicated to organizing, getting progressive candidates selected for office within the Democrats. So I suppose what I'm asking is how much of the efforts of people like yourself actually paid off? How much do you think, how much of the progressive side of things can you see have come directly from the organizing efforts of people like yourself? Yeah, I think, well, the first thing is that in so many ways, the progressive movement is just getting started. Bernie Sanders ran his campaign in 2016. AOC gets elected in 2018. Um, the squad essentially doubles in 2020. And, uh, you know, the conservative revolution took 25 years to put together and we're still in the first phase of this progressive revolution happening. And so um, I don't think that we have been able to deliver the full progressive agenda that Bernie Sanders or AOC believe in that they want to see enacted. And um, that is why we need to continue to organize and be involved and get more people elected, win more seats in Congress. Um, in terms of the effect that people have already had, um, so much of the Biden governing agenda is based on the Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden task forces that were put together um, after Bernie Sanders uh, removed himself from the Democrat, stepped down from the Democratic primary and Joe Biden won uh, the presidential nomination for the Democratic Party. And progressives were able to have a major impact on those task forces. And much of what's in those task forces are what is being proposed by Joe Biden today, particularly on climate and infrastructure. And so uh, there was um, the inclusion of a civilian conservation corps modeled on FDR's conservation corps uh, from the 1930s. And Joe Biden has pledged to create that in his infrastructure project, which is a demand that comes from the Sunrise Movement. And the amount of money dedicated to that is way lower than what Sunrise and AOC and progressives are asking for, um, but it's still a start. And uh, I guess a second point is that um, they did shave off the some of the clean energy targets um, that Joe Biden had initially proposed. For the first time, probably in American history, we had a Democratic Party candidate whose uh, climate policy moved to the left uh, ahead of the general election, and that that is nothing to sneeze at. And is almost solely. Uh, credited to the work of the Sunrise Movement and of uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, the $1,400 checks that were sent out by Joe Biden, that wasn't a guaranteed thing until Bernie Sanders started to actively push for it in the Senate and organize for it. Um, Bernie Sanders is largely to credit for what happened. Um, the parliamentary congressional politics of what's happening today is that uh, when Sanders and Biden created those task forces, the conservative Democrats in the Senate were not part of those 
uh, negotiations. People like uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and Mark Kelly, um, the most conservative uh, members of the Senate caucus on the Democratic side. And so what's happening today is that Biden will propose essentially what he campaigned on and what was agreed to in those task forces. And then these conservative Democrats um, will chip away at it. But you have House progressives and Bernie Sanders as a budget chairman holding the line to make sure that uh, these what was agreed on does not get significantly watered down to the point that it is no longer effective at delivering results. And so um, that's also what's happening here in terms of just the congressional math and how these negotiations are playing out. Um, I think Kate is absolutely right that there are significant progressive personnel in the administration much more progressive than people that President Obama appointed. Um, you even have Biden uh, administration officials going on and off the record dunking on Larry Summers, which I think history books, economic history books will probably like cite as a major achievement in uh, progressive economics. Um, you know, progressives didn't win the entirety of the cabinet, didn't even win half of the cabinet. But there are good people there, particularly people who are closely associated with Elizabeth Warren, Jay Inslee, and Bernie Sanders himself. And you know, you would never have gotten those kinds of appointments to the extent that you've gotten them today um, under President Obama. So um, those are some things. And then lastly, I'll say, you know, the pullout from the war in Afghanistan. This is something that progressives for many years have been organizing uh, for is to, um, you know, withdraw our troops from Afghanistan after the most prolonged conflict that the United States has ever been involved in. And I don't think anyone expected that President Biden within his first 100 days would do this measure. And the measure is extremely popular with the American public. And so um, because progressives are largely the foreign policy critics of the American establishment on on areas of war and um, overseas intervention, that is definitely a progressive win. And one quick thing I would just add that I, I forgot to mention along with Bernie Sanders and the Green New Deal, which I wrote a book about. Um, so apologies to that, getting incepted as a centrist. Um, but, you know, we saw this sort of remarkable moment a couple of weeks ago with refugee policy, right, where the Biden administration announced they were not going to raise the like draconianly low refugee cap that the Trump administration had put in place. Mm -hmm. There was public outcry and they reversed the decision, right? They aren't going to raise it. Um, so, you know, I think that's a level of receptiveness that certainly has not happened in the last four years and I think is even really, you know, different than, than Obama or maybe any administration in recent memory. Um, that, you know, there is a real sense of, of, of back and forth between uh, kind of what's what's happening in kind of progressive policy spaces and on Twitter even, uh, and, and and different parts of the kind of progressive ecosystem and, and what's happening in the White House, it's really encouraging. And I think is, is you know, in some senses, given how limited the office of the, of the president is, um, maybe kind of the best you can hope for, which um, feels a little strange to say, but I think ha having a, a White House, which is, is responsive to pressure, um, is, really, is really important. And I think we've only really started to see that happen. You know, I think we have not really because of COVID in part, seen massive demonstrations in the streets um, to you know, push the Biden administration to do more. And I think that could um, really bear a lot of fruit based on what we've seen so far. I'll, I'll just add one more thing about um, what is happening is, I think Kate alluded to this earlier, there are a lot of people who got their 
involvement in politics through the Bernie Sanders campaign, including myself largely. And, uh, you know, when you don't have, you know, there's a, there's a platform that Bernie Sanders campaigned on that is not the platform of Joe Biden. But to judge Joe Biden solely on the basis that he's not Bernie Sanders is not the best way to assess the political moment because you have to judge Joe Biden for his own self-interest, his own ideology, his own frameworks, and also judge him on the merits of who he is. And that should inform our strategy versus just being upset that he's not Bernie Sanders. Um, we should all move toward the goals, obviously, of what Bernie Sanders campaigns on and fight for them every day. Um, but there are certain things that Joe Biden is just not going to do fully. So a good example of that is Joe Biden vociferously waged a campaign against um, single payer health care and uh, spent a lot of time in the primary talking about how he opposed single payer health care. And so what's been happening in the past few weeks is that um, Bernie Sanders and the Congressional Progressive Caucus have assembled a coalition that's pretty includes some of the most conservative Democrats and some of the most left-wing Democrats um, who are trying to lower the age of Medicare from 65 to 55. Obviously, that is not Medicare for all or single payer, but there is a moment where when you can organize these things and push Biden on things that he's actually said he's supportive on, that you can win. It would be pretty historic in the United States context and for Joe Biden to lower the age of Medicare from 65 to 55. And those are achievable things that we should be obviously pushing for um, alongside other th other things, but largely because of the pandemic, and I don't know what it's been like in the UK with Jeremy Corbyn, but I'm really interested in hearing about it. But there has been kind of a stages, five stages of grief to Bernie Sanders not winning the presidential nomination. And because of the pandemic, Bernie Sanders campaign ended right at the beginning of the pandemic. And so people just haven't been able to process in any way other than through the online forums and tweets and YouTube shows. And I just don't think that necessarily always leads to the best analysis of the, of the current political moment and leads to a lot of outrage being placed at the play, uh, at the feet of progressives rather than kind of just taking a step back and understanding the political moment we're in and what it means that Bernie Sanders did not win the primary and Joe Biden did. I'll let you ask about the apocalyptic uh, situation here in Britain when I ask you about where next for the US left I mean before I do bring in kind of what comes next in terms of profound negatives and we've you've, you've mentioned good for example the withdrawal from uh, Afghanistan and also the fact that pressure did force them away from their very scandalous uh, position on refugees which was a violation of the commitments mm -hmm. that they were going to make uh, also movement on union rights, um, and, and I think that's that's extremely important to note as, as well. Uh, but on the downside, there is the issue of the $15 minimum wage, which was a campaign commitment. Obviously, there's the issue of the Senate, so I'm interested to know where that comes into it and what they can actually do about it. Uh, and also, uh, there is, for example... They've already bombed. They've already dropped bombs abroad, which is something Democrats tend to like doing, if we're going to be historically accurate. From uh, the Vietnam War, uh, many of the Democrats obviously very vociferously backed the Iraq War. We could go on. Um, oh, and I don't think you, you tout your degrees in American history as much as you like. I know, I really should. know so like, much maybe... about American <laughs> politics. Put them in the bottom. Put them in the bottom <laughs> next time. Um, but also, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm interested in, you know, for example, the rights of refugees and migrants still. 
uh, foreign policy. So we're, 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 I'm interested in that, the minimum wage issue and also foreign policy, rights of migrants and refugees and anything else where you think there was an abject failure from the Biden administration at the moment. Kate. Yeah, I think. Oh, okay, no, please. Sorry, go Fine. for it. Uh, yeah, I mean, they ha they have largely not, they've largely rejected making immigration a major priority of the administration. Obviously, they've begun to reverse some of the most draconian parts of the Trump administration. But um, what's been happening in the US context is that Republicans and Fox News are talking about immigration every day. And Joe Biden has kind of ceded that territory to the right because he wants to make the national conversation about infrastructure and the major piece of legislation that he's uh, he's introducing. Um, but, you know, that means that uh, migrant rights continues to be punted on. It's unclear if uh, when immigration reform and a pathway to citizenship for the 11 million plus undocumented Americans who live in this country, um, when relief for them will become a political reality. Uh, but I do think that Joe Biden, you know, it's on, on guns and on immigration, those are issues they've kind of seeded that they're not going to fully go, uh, you know, go 100 miles per hour on. So what's happening is that if you look at public opinion polling, the two issues where Joe Biden polls worse with the American people are guns and immigration. That is a combination of factors where one, voters are only hearing about these two issues from Republicans. Two, uh, there are also people who care about these issues on the progressive side and in the mainstream America who do not, who are frustrated that Joe Biden, you know, if that's your number one issue, immigration or gun violence, you're frustrated that Joe Biden hasn't taken these things up. Um, and then obviously, yeah, the $15 minimum wage, it has been a major disappointment. I don't know how far we can get into the whole reconciliation rules of the Senate and how, sometimes when it requires 60 votes and sometimes when it requires 50 votes to get something done. Um, we have a really dumb political system that I would not encourage anyone else adopt. Um, but Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, um, has said that he is going to fight for a $15 minimum wage to be included in a reconcilable bill. Um, that is a huge test for the administration and a place where this math, uh, parliamentary math, um, comes into play where Joe Biden campaigned on delivering $15 minimum wage. It was part of the Sanders-Biden task forces. And then people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema have never supported a $15 minimum wage in their entire careers. And they were elected by their constituents to, you know, not do a $15 minimum wage. Um, so again, this has been such a major Democratic priority for several years that I think this is something that Joe Biden absolutely has to deliver to the American people. Today, he announced that federal contractors will get a $15 minimum wage. Um, so that is through an executive order where he does not have to go through legislation, which is progress. But, um, you know, it would be a major, major disappointment to all the unions and all the progressive activists and all the workers who deserve a $15 minimum wage if he if he could not get that done um, before the 2022 midterms. Um, there's an obvious solution to this, which is to eliminate the filibuster and just get it done. Um, but you still have to deal with those Senate Democrats who currently do not support a $15 minimum wage and, and never have. Um, so that's that's some of the math around that. Okay, in terms of the just the out and out profound negatives, what would you say? 
Yeah, I mean, I think foreign policies you mentioned with the big right exception of finally getting out of Afghanistan um, is the place where the sorts of gains we've seen on domestic policy, including on climate, have not really translated. There's a pretty hard core of career State Department national security officials who are essentially trying to resume business as usual, right? And so what that's translated into is a sort of strange thing where even domestic policy priorities that are fairly progressive, right? Things like a big infrastructure bill are being termed in, uh, are, are being put in terms of national security, right? And so the big sort of boogeyman that the Biden, parts of the Biden administration and, you know, congressional Democrats even are trying to make out is China. I mean, there's been a lot of really hawkish rhetoric around China, which, you know, is a very endlessly complicated issue, of course. Um, but you're seeing things like a climate program, right? framed in terms of, you know, how are we going to outcompete China and win the future for, for green energy, which is, I mean, it's just sort of a strange thing um, to look at on its face, you know, someone who covers climate policy to see things like research and innovation being put in this thing called the Endless Frontiers Act that's going through Congress or, you know, will we'll come up for a vote at some point soon um, to do basic things like investing in basic research, but have it framed as, you know, we have to win this geopolitical fight and sort of creating this, this enemy, which is this very United States thing to do, right? We're sort of bad at doing big things internally without having some foreign enemy to do it against, right? And so that's really worrying. You know, I think we've seen the kind of human cost of this, this you know, sort of nationalistic approach to doing good things domestically um, already, you know, having gin, ginning up this fight has, you know, I, I think has something to do with the fact that we've seen a sort of rash of, of anti-Asian violence in, in this country. Um, and, you know, I don't want to sort of overinterpret that, but I, I don't think it's, 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 it's right to understand those things as separate. Right. And so, you know, I think foreign policy is, is, is one area where, things are really stuck in the past and stuck in these sort of terrible, you know, very U.S. patterns that are, as you mentioned, incredibly, incredibly bipartisan. And I think one of the places where this is playing out most disastrously is on COVID, right? I mean, we're seeing a horrible, horrible outbreak um, in India right now. And the U.S. has not budged on waiving patent protections at the World Trade Organization. This this, this call that's been on on the books for months now um, in, in the administration to um, waive patent protections that are, you know, keeping, uh, keeping vaccine supply from very, you know, vulnerable parts of the world that is ultimately undermining the world's response and, you know, could come back to bite the U.S. very quickly um, if, it's, if it's not dealt with. And the U.S. has not budged on that. In fact, last week, amid sort of growing calls within the U.S., popular calls to, to finally waive patent protections, saw the, the Biden administration issue this like bizarre statement for World Intellectual Property Day, sort of singing the praises of intellectual property as fueling innovation, um, which is, you know, this is a whole sort of like the rabbit hole we can go down. But, you know, I think the stance of trying to have the U.S. as sort of the dominant power on the world stage atop, you know, of rules-based international order, that is still very much the mindset um, that the national security foreign policy establishment in Washington is in. And it's really dangerous. You know, I think it is really dangerous. And I don't think that the sort of progress we've seen on domestic policy can be, can be understood as separate from that. So finally, strategy, U.S. left. What is the strategy? 
what should the US left be doing now to organize um, and what what's the what's the future? Who wants to go? Who wants to start? Well, Eve, I suppose you've I think... been that's your job, I suppose. So what, <laughs> yeah. what, what are you going to do? So the major parts of organizing happening right now is uh, the Democratic Socialists of America have been wheeled, uh, running an amazing, impressive campaign on the PRO Act, which is a would be a historic piece of legislation that would um, allow union allow workers to unionize more effectively and give them more rights to bargain. Um, and we've, we haven't seen legislation like this in a long, long time in the United States. And so what they've been doing is calling the handful of conservative Senate Democrats. Um, they've been organizing constituents from uh, the states of Virginia and West Virginia and Arizona and making these phone calls to get these last three or four senators to sign on to the PRO Act. And this would be a huge win if we could get that passed. And then it would enable us to have even more wins down the line by increasing union density in the United States and having more worker power in this country. Um, secondly, and so, so there's a bunch of things like that where we can uh, make calls and from, from the states that these Senate Democrats are in to pressure them on progressive priorities like the PRO Act, like the $15 minimum wage, um, et cetera. Secondly, look, you st we still have to build a bigger squad in the Congress. Um, you know, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are the most progressive senators in the U.S. Senate. Um, and then you have a handful of extremely progressive social democratic, democratic socialist um, members of the House of Representatives, um, people who are People, you can see our, if you go to our website, you can see who we've endorsed, who's currently an elected official. Um, but it's not nearly enough for this long-term transformation that we need of the Democratic Party and of Congress. You know, I was reading this book about the abolitionist movement. And when the abolitionist movement was at its height, one third of Republicans in Congress were essentially aligned with the abolitionist movement. We are nowhere near those numbers in the United States um, in terms of having, you know, radicals, progressives, um, really who are willing to fight for working class people uh, to have seats in Congress. And at the end of the day, your power is measured in how many seats you hold. And um, we still have a caucus that is more dominated by conservative business interests than by progressives who reject corporate money. Um, and then lastly, I would say there's still a major fight to be had on this infrastructure bill. Um, the Sunrise Movement and other organizations are pushing for more robust uh, climate spending in this bill. Um, we all agree, everyone knows that this is our last chance to likely pass major climate legislation um, for several years in this country. They are, the Biden administration is not gonna go back to climate after they pass this bill. And so we have to make the boldest, biggest investments we've ever made, anyone has ever made, um, to move not only the US, but the world toward 100% clean and renewable energy. And there's gonna be a major fight over that in the next uh, few months. Um, you know, it is historic that we are even having the climate investment being in the jobs and infrastructure bill, but so that's a win for sure, but we need to make sure that it's um, bold and aggressive. And then, um, so I'd, I would say those are like the, the three areas. One, um, you know, making sure people are organizing, calling these conservative Senate Democrats. Two, primarying uh, neoliberal, conservative, corporate-backed incumbents, which is primarily what my organization does and building that squad up. So it's not just six people, but 12, 25, 30 people over time. 
And then um, lastly is just making sure this infrastructure is as bold and as aggressive as it can be because this is our last chance. Okay, what do you think? Strategy? Well, I would agree with Holly on all of that. I mean, I'll say I'll say two things. Um, I think one is that, you know, we, we've talked a lot about how far uh, the conversation on, on a lot of issues has come in the last several years, and that is the result of real disruption, right? In the form of people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez winning her congressional election, thanks to Ali in part, uh, and Sunrise, the Sunrise Movement sitting in at Nancy Pelosi's office, you know, thing that would horrify most congressional staffers uh, and people, you know, eager to maintain their relationships with with uh, with politicians in Washington, um, but really changed the conversation. And I think is you know a big part of why Sunrise was in the room, right? In in crafting these task forces that shaped the Biden administration's governing agenda. So I think the lesson from the last five years, or you know, the last hundred years of, of U.S. history is that disruption really works. Really disruptive pressure from below can go a long way. And that is how we get stuff done in in U.S. politics. It's not going to come. The sort of action we're going to need on climate, you know, to just go back to my my hobby horse, um, is not going to come from having a lot of nice meetings with Gina McCarthy, the U.S. climate envoy. It's not going to come from having a lot of nice meetings with John Kerry or Ron Klain in the White House, right? It's going to come from making their lives very hard. That is how progressive change has happened in this country historically, um, by you know not by by not just movements from below, but also primary challenges, as as, as Willie has mentioned. Um, that is how we've gotten so far, and is how we're going to get even farther. Uh, and we know that that gap is so big when it comes to decarbonization. The sort of scale of what we need to do is just so so massive, and we're nowhere near close. None of the the best plans on offer from the Biden administration. Or even close, right, to what's to what's actually needed to addressing the historical responsibility of the United States to dealing with this crisis, um, to taking on, you know, the real role it should be playing here, um, and that's really tough. It's a tough road through Congress, um, but you know that needs to happen, and it's not going to happen without a lot of pressure. Um, the other thing I'll say just briefly is that there are a lot of powers that the administration has that you know can be influenced by by movements. Um, at its disposal already that don't need to run through Congress. You know, just for instance, financial regulators, right, can discourage investments in fossil fuels, discourage Wall Street from making investments in fossil fuels with existing powers under Dodd-Frank, under under this reform passed after the financial crisis, right? And so there's all of these tools, whether it's on trade policy, sort of throwing the United States weight around and places like the WTO or the IMF or World Bank um, that can do a lot of good. And those are tools that the administration has not picked up yet, but it could. Um, and I, you know, I think that involves a real challenge to capital that involves, you know, really going up against some very vested interests. Um, but is, you know, what's what's needed, not least of which on climate, but also, you know, for things like COVID response um, is, is just a sort of bare minimum. So I think picking up more tools than, you know, than, than, than the ones that are, are subject to Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema's veto powers is really important. That was that was amazing, both of you. Thanks so much. That was, I think, Thank very you. educational and very appropriate because it is 100 days afterwards. It is a discussion which is very live and it needs to be had. And I think that was a very nuanced, thoughtful, factually-based uh, discussion that was very helpful and constructive. So what everyone needs to do who is either watching this, wherever you're watching it, or on the podcast... Uh, do follow both Kate Aronoff and Wally Shaheed and buy their books, uh, listen to their work. Uh, they're both two of the best 
on the US left. So that's why it's a big honor to have them both uh, on the show and the podcast. So thank you to both of you. Please like and subscribe on the YouTube channel. And I will speak to both of you soon. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Owen. Take care. Cheers. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, do support us on patreon.com forward slash owenjones84. Help us decide who we talk to, what we talk about, the documentaries we do, uh, and also on the supporter function, uh, which you can see in the description. And leave us five stars and a review. It just helps other people listen. Uh, and with that, thank you so much. Speak soon. 